Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 316th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. Last Tuesday, we reported on this ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting that was taking place at CMS headquarters in Baltimore while we were actually on the air. And today, we'll have an update on the outcome of that two-day meeting when Linda Holtzman joins us later in the broadcast. She is the founder and principal of Clarity Coding. She's also a recognized personality at the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meetings. Boy, you can certainly say that again. Uh, the CMS <laughs> meeting is always important news, and Laurie Johnson will report on some of the more notable proposals for new code topics that were presented last week. Speaking of codes, Nella Leon Chisane from the American Hospital Association is on the program. She'll be discussing COPD. We are delighted to have her on the program. Also on the broadcast today is Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is going to be reporting on a sports story. It's a story that involves a major basketball star and ICD-10 coding. What do you think of that? Mm, you do know I am from Cleveland, right? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Now, before we go to the Talk 10 Tuesday news desk, you have a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey, right? I do. So here's the question we're asking you today. What is the most difficult issue for your system or institution when it comes to respiratory failure? Uh, First choice is getting providers to use the diagnosis when it's present. Second choice is getting providers to avoid using the diagnosis when it is not present. My providers over and underutilize the diagnosis equally. Me or my fellow CDIS coders don't recognize the clinical indicators adequately. Post-operatively, no problem and not applicable. We're going to have the results of the Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey at the end of this broadcast. But now let's check in with Lori Johnson, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University. Inviting you to register now to learn about assumptive coding for heart disease featuring Terry Fletcher on Wednesday, March 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and happy Tuesday to our listeners. The Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting did occur last Tuesday and Wednesday to discuss potential new codes. The webcasts are posted for viewing if you missed it last week. The work is not over for for the CNM meeting. Now is the time for code users to comment on the proposals. For ICD-10-CM, the comments are due by May 11, 2018. Please note that the diagnosis codes discussed last week will not be implemented until October 1, 2019, if they're chosen. The final updates for fiscal year 19, i.e. implemented 10-1-2018, will be published in, the June, in June 2018. For ICD-10-PCS, the comments are due by April 1, 2018. These codes that were discussed last week, they are, if they're accepted, again, will be implemented October 1st, 2018. So that's the reason for the short turnaround time. There's a handout under the Handouts tab 
that provides you the information that I just gave you, especially the um, the email addresses where you can send your comments to. I always learn when I attend or watch the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. You get to understand the spirit of the code. This year, there were requests for codes in the new technology section, but the vendors had not yet requested or applied for new technology add-on payment. So there's a little, um, I think, difference in the process. Um, and that new technology add-on payment is, is under the MSDRG methodology. The new tech qualifier for, for fiscal year 19 will be group four. Uh, one procedure that seemed to have generated a lot of discussion was the insertion of the remediophrenic nerve stimulation system. This procedure is used to treat severe central sleep apnea in adults. The discussion was based on if a specific phrenic nerve stimulation generator device character was needed. The concern around the development of a specific device character was how many more codes would then result, meaning if we need to create a new character for every specific device, it, it would um, generate way too many codes for ICD-10 PCS. Um, the CMS recommendation was that they wanted input from the audience. So, again, here's the opportunity for you to provide some input in and determining whether a code gets adopted or not. I also enjoyed the presentation on partial knee joint replacements. Knee and hip arthroplasties are among the top inpatient procedures in the United States. The request is to add and revise devices under replacement in the lower joint section, including unicondylar, lateral, or medial, a synthetic substitute for patellofemoral, and an articulating spacer. There is also a request to add modular head under the root operation supplement. So as you can see, there were a lot of discussions. That's just two of the procedures that were discussed, and there were many more topics discussed last week. So, Chuck, it's back to you. Thanks, uh, Lori, very much. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. It is Tuesday. It's March 13th. Rex Tillerson has been fired as Secretary of State. On the other hand, you're listening to the 316th edition of Talk Tuesday's Standby. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD University. When it comes to diagnosing respiratory failure, some providers may not make the diagnosis when it's present, or they may call everything respiratory failure, setting up their institutions for clinical validation denials. This Thursday, Dr. Eric Reamer will explain the clinical indicators so you can identify respiratory distress, hypoxemia, hypercarbia, and respiratory failure, including these indicators in the postoperative setting. Dr. Reamer will also give you the tools to compose clear and compliant queries and to avoid denials. To learn more, attend this Thursday's webcast, How to Recognize Respiratory Failure and Prevent Denials. Register today. Simply click on the rotating ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2.
Thank you, Clark Anthony. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, last Tuesday and Wednesday, CMS held its ICD-10 Coordination Maintenance Committee meeting. Now, someone who has authored many, many proposals for new and revised ICD-10 procedure codes is our next guest, and that is Linda Holtzman, and she certainly is a familiar voice and a presence at those CNM meetings. Good morning, Linda. Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, so what's new? Thanks, Chuck. Rather than discussing specific topics from the March 2018 CNM meeting, I'd like to share my observations on a few general trends I noticed which are likely to impact all of us going forward. The first is the composition of the CNM committee itself, specifically the CMS members on the ICD-10 procedure code side. We were fortunate that the committee structure had been remarkably stable for years, and the CMS representatives were dedicated professional coders. But with the retirement a few months ago of Pat Brooks, the longtime CNM co-chair, a rather concerning trend has emerged. There are still four CMS representatives on the committee, but now only one of them is an RHIA. The others are a nurse, an occupational therapist, and one with no related background. With much respect, they don't know coding, and it showed at the meeting. Two of the proposals were so inconsistent with basic ICDM principles that CMS had to take down the original proposals from the CNM website and post corrected versions. This does not bode well, I think, for the committee or for coding in general. For myself, I'm writing to the director of the CMS Division of Acute Care to express that the CNM Coding Committee should be composed primarily of professional coders. Another trend I noticed is nothing new, but seemed particularly acute at this last CNM meeting. Many clinical presentations given by physicians continue to be, shall we say, misfocused due to the presenters not understanding who the CNM audience is. For example, two physician presenters explained that the neurovasculature works like plumbing. One said that intracranial means inside the cranium where your brain is, and one felt the need to explain how to organize health information to a room full of people with degrees in health information management. They went on and on about p-values in the clinical studies and the ICD-10 codes they didn't like, but they didn't address the things that coders actually need to know. What are the characteristics of this diagnosis or procedure? What does the documentation say that will enable us to recognize it distinctly? So, I, uh, for myself, I'm writing to the committee chairs to suggest perhaps some, some pretty straightforward guidelines for physician presenters. A third trend I noticed is more fun. Never assume that a CNM topic will be easy. There was one diagnosis code topic where the CNM representative said, this is, quote, this is hopefully an easy one. So, of course, the audience members argued about it for 15 minutes without resolution, and eventually the CNM uh, representative asked us to write in our suggestions. This easy topic uh, will probably return for a second try at the CNM meeting in September. The fourth trend, everyone's favorite, Section X, new technology. CMS presented what they called a, quote, gentle reminder on the purpose of Section X with an outline and other useful points. I encourage you to get this and to read it. Uh, CMS said at the meeting, and I'm quoting, Section X is not going away. So let's all learn how to live with it and how to make the best of it. Finally, the CNM committee has been grappling with more and more requests for unique codes for rare diagnoses. They told us they'll be looking at the overall issue of rare diseases at the September 2018 CNM meeting. So, for example, what are the criteria by which 
a disease could or should merit its own unique ICD-10 code, even though it's a rare disease. This is your opportunity to weigh in, and I hope you will. Now back to Dr. Erica. Thanks, Linda. I really missed being there with you. I think the committee needs a clinician who understands coding. Pick me, pick me. That was Linda Holtzman. Linda is the founder and principal of Clarity Coding. Thanks, Erica, very much. And Linda, thanks for that very candid update on the CNM meeting last week. Thanks again. Now, while the new ICD-10 codes have been in the healthcare news, such as this program, ICD-10 was in the news last week because of a major sports story. Here now to connect the dots between sports and ICD-10 is talked in Tuesday. Resident psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffat. Good morning, Dr. Moffat. So let's talk about two of your favorite subjects, sports and mental health. Yes, thank you, Chuck. You know, over 20 years ago, a colleague and I started the first ever sports psychiatry program at a medical school. We both loved sports and participated in many growing up. Over time, that local program actually morphed into the International Society for Sports Psychiatry. One of our initial goals was to destigmatize mental illness in athletes, as athletes were even more reluctant than the public to admit mental illness, even though it was assumed they were as vulnerable, especially due to the pressures, losses, and short careers. Very slowly, examples of self-disclosure have emerged. The latest, and perhaps most dramatic, is professional basketball star Kevin Love, who just last week went so public that he appeared on many daily news shows. He was as much surprised at his self-disclosure as he was about having a panic disorder. Here's why. Years back, early in his professional career, a friend asked him why National Basketball Association players didn't see psychotherapists. Mr. Love answered, I scoff at the idea. Nobody talked about what they were struggling with on the inside. I didn't want to look weak. Now, no wonder his favorite emoji had been a flex muscle. Come later reality, he was actually laid weak by his panic disorder. He had frozen more than once at a game over recent months, leaving his teammates perplexed. After the most recent, he ran into the locker room with such symptoms as confusion, dizziness, heart palpitations, feeling short of breath, and a fear he was dying from a heart attack. He was taken to a hospital where a medical workup was negative and then thought to have a panic disorder. He was referred to a therapist. Indeed, this is a common yet understandable misinterpretation of those symptoms. They often seem to be physical at first, so panic disorder is sometimes thought to be the great masquerader. The distinguishing factor seems to be that the brief panic attacks go away on their own fairly quickly, often in minutes, and are periodic. That is not true of most medical disorders. After these symptoms start, they are often followed by a month or more of persistent worry or behavioral change, then allowing for ICD diagnosis of F30, F41. Panic disorder, which is an anxiety disorder, is one of our most common mental disorders. It is hard to pinpoint any psychological cause for when it emerges. In Kevin Love's case, psychotherapy helped him trace back what he was anxious about to unresolved grief for a beloved grandmother. Fortunately, it is eminently treatable, as it has been for him, by psychotherapy and or medication. The strangest irony here is that, as Poco said, we have met the enemy, and the enemy is also us. Those in healthcare, including psychiatrists, are as reluctant as athletes to self-disclose. Yet, as the greatest player and his teammate LeBron James lovingly treated Mr. Love, what he is doing is a sign of strength, not weakness. Quotes, you're even more powerful now than ever before, end of quote. Indeed, another athlete, the football player Brandon Marshall, has called raising mental health awareness 
quotes, the civil rights issue of our era, end of quotes. In our various presentations, we've also realized that on Talk 10 Tuesday. Have we not, Chuck? Over to you, Erica. Thanks, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thank you very much, Dr. Moffick. And be sure to read my interview with Dr. Moffick. It's on physician burnout, and you can find it in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. It's up on our website at this very moment. Now, a change of pace, we're going to talk about COPD. It's our lead story this morning, and COPD continues to be a challenge to code and to document. Of course, it's one of the most frequently searched terms on the Internet. Wouldn't you agree, Erica? Yep. So this morning, we are pleased to have Nellie Leon-Shusain with us on Top 10 Tuesday. Nellie is the Director of Coding and Classification for the American Hospital Association. Good morning, Nellie. Welcome to Top 10 Tuesday. And to help us understand some of the coding issues, especially when a patient presents with pneumonia with or without a history of COPD. Nellie? Yes, COPD can indeed be a challenge to code and document, but Coding Clinic has been out there trying to help us out. So COPD uh, is a general term used to describe a variety of conditions that result in obstruction of the airway. And if you recall, ICD-10-CM classifies these conditions to category J44, other chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Now, category J44 is further subdivided to specify whether there is an acute lower respiratory infection, J44.0, and whether there is an exacerbation of the condition, J44.1. And, of course, there is also code J44.9 for unspecified COPD. The list of inclusion terms under category J44 can be challenging as questions arise as to whether these combinations are all covered under category J44 and do not require any other codes, or if another code is needed, what order should these codes be in. So reading the tabular notes is important because they clarify that codes from category J45 are assigned to specify the type of asthma and code J44.0, COPD with acute lower respiratory infection, needs a code to identify the infection. The note at J44.0 used to read, use additional code to identify the infection, which resulted in confusion over sequencing different types of pneumonias with COPD since the note required that code J44.0 be sequenced before the actual infection. Infection. So it's important to evaluate coding clinic advice looking at the date it was published and confirming whether the instructional guidance has remained the same since the publication date. Coding clinic provided guidance in 2016 and 2017 for sequencing pneumonia and COPD. However, the use additional code was changed to a code also note effective October 2017. Now, this means that instead of a so-called hard-coded sequencing instruction, the sequencing of code J44.0 versus the infection code for the pneumonia will depend on the circumstances of the encounter, meaning that we would apply the definition of principal diagnosis to determine the sequencing. So if the patient is admitted to treat the pneumonia, the code for pneumonia would now go first. Another issue related to what infections were included in the lower respiratory infections covered by J44.0. Acute bronchitis and infectious pneumonias are included, 
but influenza is not, since influenza involves both the upper and lower respiratory infection. Also, aspiration pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia are not included under J44.0, since the ICD-10-CM codes for these pneumonias do not fall under the respiratory infection codes. Aspiration pneumonia is under lung diseases due to external agents, while ventilator-associated pneumonia is under intraoperative and post-procedural complications and disorders of respiratory system. So when a patient with either aspiration pneumonia or ventilator-associated pneumonia has COPD, what we use is J44.9 unspecified COPD instead of J44.0 for the infection or J44.1 exacerbation because an acute exacerbation is not the equivalent to an infection superimposed on a chronic condition, although an exacerbation may be triggered by an infection. Back to you, Dr. Erica. You know what, Nellie? I have a question for you. If a patient has aspiration pneumonitis, which is, you know, inhaling, um, it's usually a chemical reaction, but they end up with a secondary bacterial pneumonia as a result, would you make the, would the code be for both of them, and then you could use the J44-0? Well, if, if the patient happens to have both the aspiration pneumonia and bacterial pneumonia, those are two different types of pneumonia. Um, so you could assign the two codes. Now, whether the J44.0 would be assigned also would depend on uh, the linkage that is made in the documentation. Everything depends on, on the doctor's documentation. That clears it up for me. I appreciate it. So thank you very much, Nellie. That was Nellie Leon Chisane. Nellie is the Director of Coding and Classification for the American Hospital Association. Chuck? Dr. Eber, you've got something on your mind. Let's hear it. First, I think we're going to do the survey. What is the most difficult issue for your system institution when it comes to respiratory failure? So 17% of you said getting the providers to use the diagnosis when it is present. And now 23% of you are saying getting providers to avoid using the diagnosis when it's not present. And 24% of you are like, yeah, they do both. 4% of you actually don't think that it's an issue that you don't recognize the clinical indicators. Postoperative is a problem in 7%, and then the rest is not so important. So um, I think that that shows that there are people who are still having issues with this in their clinical documentation integrity programs. And uh, if that's the case, I think that what we probably should do is join me on Thursday when I'm doing a webinar for um, ICD University on respiratory failure. And now, once again, it's time for the co-host of Talk to Tuesday, Dr. Erica Reamer, to talk about something that's on her mind. Dr. Reamer, what is on your mind today? When coding guidelines are made, it's sometimes hard to anticipate every eventuality that's going to crop up. And I respect that the coding authorities do the best they can, and I think they actually do a really good job. But as a clinician who gets coding, sometimes I find scenarios which do not satisfy my sensibilities. So this all started with a uh, case of a patient who came in from a nursing home with ataxia, nystagmus, and vomiting from elevated dilatin level. So I, I want to also give this patient gingival hyperplasia, which is a known side effect of phenytoin. So I did a lot of reading, the official guidelines, coding clinics, articles on the Internet from very knowledgeable coding professionals, and they would suggest that this is supposed to be coded as an adverse reaction. 
I respectfully disagree and think the rules should be changed. Since I have the benefit of being able to measure a level, I know this is an overdosage. Is it from an accidental administration of too much medication? Did something change in the patient's situation which should have resulted in a dosage adjustment? Did another medication affect the level due to an unexpected interaction? I don't know why, but I do know that this is what I, as a clinician, would consider a poisoning. The gingival hyperplasia is an adverse effect of phenytoin, but the ataxia and astagmus vomiting resulting from a markedly elevated level, even if the medication was duly prescribed and properly administered, I think it should be coded as a poisoning in my clinician head. Most medications can't be measured or monitored, so you have to presume that if they're being correctly administered and taken, that they're in the therapeutic range. An undesired side effect while a medication is therapeutic is the definition of adverse effect. But if you can measure a level and you know it is toxic, the rules should not mandate coding adverse effects because this is toxicity. I try to think about the goal of ICD-10. It is meant to be able to epidemiologically track trends. If they release a new medication and lots of patients start to show harmful effects, then someone should look at that medication to see if the benefits outweigh the risks. If the answer is no, you have identified a problem and you may need to remove the cause by taking the drug off the market. If the undesirable manifestations only occur when the level is toxic and the benefits of the drug are high, then the medication shouldn't be penalized when it's kept in the therapeutic range. An action should be taken to maintain the level in the therapeutic range. So if two medications are prescribed correctly and properly administered and there are adverse effects, but you can't prove overdosage of either and can't determine which is the culprit, give them both a code for adverse effects. But if you can measure a level and know it is high, then I think it should be called a poisoning. And if it isn't clear by, as Nellie was um, intimating before, if it isn't clear by the circumstances or the documentation, the provider should be queried. This isn't necessarily intuitive, and they may need education, but the clinician should be given the opportunity to use his judgment. Therapeutic with side effects, adverse effects. Toxic with manifestations, poisoning. So, Chuck, that's my talk back for this week. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much, uh, Erica. That was uh, really very interesting. And, by the way, you can read her story. It's up on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage right now. Thanks again. Uh, Erica, let's take a look at a couple of questions that come in. I'm particularly interested in uh, Sherry's response to what you just heard from Linda. So Sherry totally agrees with Linda. Um, she thinks that you need cre- uh, credentials coders and that we're getting lost in the quality metrics and not really following ICD-10-CM tenets. What do you think about that, uh, Linda, and possibly Nellie might want to chime in as well? This is Linda. I actually posted a response to Susan in the chat box. One CNM member from CMS is indeed a certified coder. That's Mary Lou Hugh. She goes by Maddie. She's mm-hmm. an RHIA and a CCS. Um, she's been on the committee for years, decades, um, and is very well informed. Um, also, a clinician member like an RN or an MD or a DO, that's useful. And, um, in fact, um, the committee has designated um, uh, clinical advisors uh, who are physicians uh, working for CMS. But absolutely, uh, I feel that the majority of the CN- CNM members um, from CMS 
must be professional coders. And in fact, that's um, why I plan to write to the director of the CMS Division of Acute Care to express that view. And I would, uh, if you feel the same way, I would encourage you to do the same. The director of the CMS Division of Acute Care is a gentleman named Don Thompson. And I'm sure he's just just waiting to hear from us. <laughs> this is Nellie. I am not privy to what happens behind the scenes. So uh, what Linda's referring to are the folks that served as presenters for the topics. I don't know whether Maddie, who uh, Linda referred to, was involved in reviewing all the other presentations or has worked with the presenters to put these proposals forward. So I will take a pass on what actually happens because I don't know what, um, what the behind-the-scenes uh, process is. I should note that I also am not privy to what's going on behind the scenes. And, of course, everything that I've said is my own opinion and only my own. Oh, very good. That's going to be the last word. I want to thank you very much. This is going to be a wrap for this edition. Actually, it's our 316th edition of Talk Gen Tuesday. And uh, Eric and I want to thank Linda Holtzman, whom you just heard, Lori Johnson, Nellie Leon Chasing, whom you just heard, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. And we hope you're going to be right back here this Thursday when we do the uh, Recognize Respiratory Failure and Preventive Styles. That's the webcast featuring Dr. Erica Reamer. It's coming your way this Thursday, 1.30 p.m. And I hope you'll be back here with us next Tuesday. That's when we're going to be joined by Stanley Nockerson, Glenn Cross, Terry Fletcher, and Dr. Jeffrey Epstein. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday night to the Bonner Boy. Thanks very much, everyone. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.